You're listening to this very special broadcast of the Green Majority Radio Program. We are uh, not here. Stefan and I are not actually here. This is all being recorded in the past. Uh, so if this doesn't make it to air, it's because something terrible happened. Uh, we hope not. But uh, that's the way it is. That's the magic of live radio. So what's basically going to happen was uh, a mutual friend of uh, Stefan and mine, Molly Freems, mm-hmm. uh, is, uh, has been uh, asked me to get a, a class that sh- uh, she was uh, teaching. Uh, no, I'm a classmate, actually. A classmate, but organizing. <laughs> yeah. Wrang- wrangling. It's a bit of a dual role. Okay. Uh, so basically, Stefan and I get the week off because we have something else we have to, to do, uh, work-related. We both work for the same place. Molly has uh, offered to perfectly uh, help us out with that show by essentially providing us a show. So we're going to have a show that's going to be talking about uh, specifically the Toxic Tour. But if you could just really quickly, um, and we'll get more into this later, you're going to hear this a couple of times. But just for the sake of the record, um, tell us who the class is, what is the guest we're going to listen to, uh, just really quickly, uh, one shot off, uh, What what is the next hour? What's going on? Yeah, absolutely. So um, a program called Economics for the Anthropocene is about to take over the Green Majority. Um, so thank you for giving us this opportunity. Um, we're a combination of students from the University of Vermont, York University, and McGill. Uh, and we're all here for two weeks for a climate justice program um, in which we have included a series of community scholars to sort of connect ourselves and the world of academia um, with sort of like frontline uh, grassroots action. And one of our incredible scholars is BZ Gray, um, who's here with us today. And BZ is here with us all week, actually, and took us on a tour of uh, their um, territory, Amjong, um, on a toxic tour. And they're going to tell us about that. And then um, class is just going to sort of have a discussion about how that affected us and, and the work that we try to do in the E4A program. Yeah, and I think I mean one of the reasons I mean I I I will be chiming in at the end of this uh, program, but I think one of the reasons why I we agreed that it was better um, to let yourself and the students take care of it is that I mean I've we've talked about uh, Amjong First Nation uh, several occasions. We've talked about uh, the toxic tour. Uh, it's it's certainly not new information for the show, but at the same point, I've never done it, and I really don't have any idea what I'm talking about. So we uh, we very happily, Stefan and I, seed uh, the floor uh, to the class. And to and to the expert Beezy, who's um, we're going to listen to a really great interview just coming up right now in a minute. Um, so why don't we make room for that? Uh, you'll catch me a little bit later in the program. Uh, but aside from that, it's all Molly and Beezy now, and uh, and the and the class from uh, from the joint program. So take it away, guys. Okay, so Beezy, if you wouldn't mind, we'd love to hear a little bit more about Amchenong. Amchenong is a reserve created in 1827 in Treaty 29 territory. Uh, located around our reserve is just over 60 petrochemical facilities in a 25-kilometer radius. 60% of the highest admitting are in the 5-kilometer radius. Uh, the National Pollution Release Inventory list of facilities, uh, we only make up 2% of them, but we pollute about as much as the population of uh, New Brunswick, and that's pretty alarming because... That's a province compared to a very small scale reserve where we're barely even five kilometers by five kilometers in perimeter. Uh, we make up 40% of Canada's petrochemical industry. Uh, we're right at the St. Clair River and Lake Huron across from Michigan and beside Sarnia, Ontario. 
And one way I really describe um, the area and the way of with the petrochemical industry, I describe it as everything being polluted. And by that, I'm saying uh, the air can have different chemicals in them, whether, whether they're odorless or not. Uh, so benzene is one of those chemicals that are odorless, whereas something like sulfur has a more of an egg smell, um, as well as the water is polluted. We have a creek that runs through our community that's called Telford Creek, and it has signs uh, marking it saying that um, please do not touch the water can cause serious illness. Uh, and we also are told sometimes not to plant gardens because that could put us at risk. And so uh, that's our entire ecosystem that we live with is polluted. But not only that, it's the people. And so we've been tested and we have found out that we have uh, PCBs, which are now banned in Canada, in our blood systems. And we have mercury in our hair. And we have um, we have illnesses like things that are a little bit manageable, like eczema, or um, I grew up with asthma, and so did a lot of kids. And uh, there's a lot of uh, cancers later in life. And so, um, but other than that, Amjanong is a really unique area to the Great Lakes, and is. Uh, a very unique ecosystem as well. Like we have um, a lot of culture and ceremony there, and it's a very uh, beautiful and safe land, I would describe it as. <laughs> One of the, I think, most powerful parts of being on this toxic tour with you last week um, was not only learning about your community um, and sort of the facts that you're, you're just sharing with us now, but also the like extremely personal stories that you and your community members have gone through um, and I think some of them would be really valuable to share right now with our listeners. Uh, so growing up in my community, I actually had a really a disconnect with what was natural and what was um, actually real hard facts about science. And so when I would see smokestacks, I would associate them with cloud makers. And so... Uh, I didn't think clouds were natural. I thought they came from the smokestacks. And so I was in grade five and I argued with my science teacher. She was actually trying to teach me how clouds were created. And I couldn't understand that. I like saw them being made in my community and I couldn't, and they're the same color as clouds. And so that was really groundbreaking for me to figure out that um, that things are actually more natural than I thought. And so another thing was growing up with Telford Creek, um, not being able to touch the water was very interesting. And so I would have to find other sources of water that were closer to me, like the ditches. And so I'd play more in the ditches than I would playing in the creek. And I think that's something that's very normal for people is to... Uh, want to be very um, active with the water systems in their area. Uh, another thing is, uh, growing up in Amjanong, there was, again, a lot of asthma, and so uh, we had our old daycare. I was in both daycares, the one where we were right across from our facility, across the two-lane road, 
and we all had to line up for puffers. And that was something that was very normal. But then when we moved daycares, again, still same story of all having to line up with puffers. But then when I went to grade school and I was mixed in with uh, kids from town, um, that wasn't the case anymore. Not everyone had asthma. Uh, also, growing up in Amjanong, I noticed that um, like my family would go on small trips um, on weekends to go to surrounding towns and communities to uh, kind of explore our area more and know more where we come from. And so I would see uh, places like Chatham, Ipperwash, and uh, see more natural places where there's beaches, where there's no refineries surrounding their communities, and realize that it was normal. And then I would see places like Detroit, and I would see the Marathon Refinery, and I would recognize it as home, but think it was a little bit cooler because they painted the drums more and they looked like basketballs to advertise the Raptors. And so I would think things like, oh, we should do that, like paint the drums and stuff. And um, I think that's the best way I try and describe what it's like growing up because to me, trying to describe that is like trying to tell you my morning routine where it's so different for me and hard for me to even um, think of these kinds of things because they're so normal and embedded in my life. And it was hard realizing that it's not normal for everyone else. Totally. And that's the perfect segue into our next question as we sort of um, get into some deeper issues of the environmental racism that Amjong is facing. Um, I mean, you've been described as a, a land protector and a water protector before. Do you want to just sort of describe in more detail the responsibility that you feel to defend the land that you're on? So I want to address that it's rooted in the culture and in the Anishinaabe culture. Uh, the way we interact with the land, water, and even beings and creatures that are in our lands and ecosystems is that we have to interact with them in a very respectful and good way in which we don't overuse, we don't take advantage, and we don't, um, we don't do anything without being very conscious of what we're doing. And so, like, say you're taking um, things from a tree, like a branch or something, for fire, and so we will give something back to the tree and we will only take what we need. And that's where a lot of our teachings come from is that we need to be very responsible and accountable to the land and water and not overuse. And so we have that connection not only, we have that connection to the land and water. And I think that's very much rooted in the culture is that we learn a lot about how even our basic teachings are all about the environment. And I think that's a cultural difference as well. Um, and it's not that we don't feel like we have a choice in doing these kinds of things, like when we're uh, land and water protectors. It's just that we've learned differently on how we even interact with those types of things. And so another thing we do is think seven generations ahead and we think about um, how is this going to impact our 
not only our grandchildren, but our great-grandchildren and the generations after that, if we do a new project with the water, like, um, say, Chemical Valley, if we looked at it in those terms, we would realize that spilling into the water would eventually impact the future generations. And I think it's overall we really care about the environment in that way. And so we're really holding on to what culture and what teachings we have because we've been through a lot of systematic racisms where it's been taking away from us everything that we've been taught that the Creator has given us, like our name, our culture, um, have all been taken from us in one way or another through um, when the Indian agent came, through residential schools. Um, and so I think it's very important that we hold on to that and realize that it's not um, Amjanong that is um, that is terrifying or should move, is that we are a community that has solid roots to that area. We have ancestors that are being digged up from projects under the Blue Water Bridge. They want to put in a splash pad, and so they're digging up our artifacts, they're digging up our sacred items, they're digging up where our last Medewin Lodge in the 18th century, and they're digging up our bones, and they're giving them back to us like that. We can bury them in our own graveyard, which wasn't where we would have our burial mounds. And so I think that says a lot of how, how even them moving our ancestors from their burial places is showing how disrespectful and how impacted we are um, on every level from industry. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you mentioned um, the sort of systemic scale at which it's operating. You're doing so much work within your own community. Um, but from what we understand, you're also doing a ton of work connecting and making huge networks um, across um, everywhere you go, it seems. How do those networks kind of come together? So I didn't start out like in any way, like in more of a radical sense. And so it really came from doing community-led organized events through like reuse, recycle, and then not realizing that there's a much bigger picture to this. And so uh, we did things like art, like express our environment through art. And through that, we met someone named Aaron Cosmos, which is from the Tar Sands. And it was towards the end of the event, and we were sitting on a picnic table, and we struck up a conversation because we were looking at the refineries. And she told me about her area and how we had similar connections about what we were talking about and how we were impacted and how, to me, it felt amazing talking to someone else that could understand that because I feel like I have to explain a lot and I have to... Um, really try and get an, an understanding with people about what exactly is going on with Chemical Valley. Whereas when I was talking to her, she was witnessing and experiencing some of the same things and um, and very different things as well. And so um, it was a sad but kind of great experience for me to realize that I wasn't in the struggle alone. And so from there, we connected. I connected with people like. Uh, in Grassy Narrows, learning about the mercury in their water and their uh, long-time blockade of how 
them doing community action and also very based in their culture and teachings, and then learning about uh, different communities like Unistoten Camp, which is in BC, blocking pipelines from going in their land and, again, based in their culture and teachings. And learning about that I actually got to interact with Sanding Rock youth as well. And uh, I got to taught them, teach them all I knew and all I understood about pipelines because pipelines are very common in my area. Mm-hmm. There uh, is a street corner where there's 86 pipelines in the ground. Not all of them are active, but that's a lot to put in one corner of a community. And also connecting with just people in color of general that are being impacted by environmental um, environmental destructive behavior. Um, I connected with Detroit in the Marathon Refinery, which was really interesting because that's something I would see as a kid and always wonder, like, I wonder who lives there. And now we're in connection. Hmm. And these connections, I mean, they're, they're local, they're global. Um, and knowing that it's, you know, not the burden of, of your community or any others that you just discussed to sort of educate the ignorant necessarily or people who, who haven't taken the time to, to do their work. What, what are some things, some messages that you would send out or would like to share on both a small and large scale in terms of people getting either directly involved in Anjung or, or other sort of networks that you, you yourself have made? Uh, I think one of the things people should really look into is the Truth and Reconciliation Act. And so um, I think really looking into, one, what you can do on a small scale and what you can do on a large scale and how you can educate yourself on on what has been happening and also realizing what um, even these past prime ministers that we kind of glorify in not only history but we have statues of, of what they've actually said and what they've actually done. And I think that's very important in learning past the academic level of knowledge of what we're taught of history um, and learn that a lot of history is very uh, whitewashed and only put towards where colonization has happened when there's been like hundreds and thousands of years of history before that, but we're not... Um, able to learn that through our school systems and learning how actually colonization impact a lot of people and how people are wanting to move towards decolonization and how we should hold those conversations with those communities because they have been heavily impacted and they're not um, benefiting as much uh, with colonization. And I think looking into local indigenous struggles is important uh, realizing your place and privilege and stepping out of that to make change. Our movement should be as wide and diverse as our ecosystems, and we should really look and follow into those treaties because those were mutual treaties that we made at the time, and those weren't just from one side where um, someone didn't understand the language like the Indian Act or uh, shady land deals and also... Um, locally, like what we're doing is uh, Amjanong Water Gathering and Toxic Tour, which is happening August 18th to the 20th. Uh, we make it as accessible as we can uh, with accessible camping sites. We provide meals, vegan, vegetarian, as well as traditional meats to accommodate everyone's meal needs. And we do uh, the 
big bus tours like the students have been talking about and a larger scale so that people can be educated on where petrochemical industry comes from and even where uh, people's tires, juicy fruit gum or XL gum come from uh, and where plastics and those types of things come from and uh, learn how they're not only impacting people, but they're impacting uh, our Great Lakes. It is time for our first music break. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful community radio partners from uh, coast to coast and internationally as well, as well as our podcast listeners. Uh, you can uh, stay tuned uh, for more show, but also check out the website if you'd like. You can go to greenmajority.ca to find more about our program. Uh, without further ado, we're going to be back right after this music break. Welcome back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, one of our wonderful community radio partners, or perhaps our podcast. We return now to our interview, where we return with uh, BZ and Molly and the students, and we're discussing a little bit about the impacts of the Toxic Tour. So one of the things that I found really striking about the Toxic Tour was that immediately you see the oppressiveness of the industry right looming above you and I didn't know what I was seeing all I knew was that there was this tiny little lovely community that was really beautiful and surrounded by nature that I understood was completely off bounds because it was all toxic and these mega mega structures sort of looming over every aspect of it but I don't know what they were. So I'm wondering if you can explain what the heck it was, because it was really scary to just be near it. There were tanks and drums. And so as a kid, I used to think those are football stadiums. So that's the best way I can describe them is um, they're very large, uh, white cylinder but they don't take very good care of them in Amshanang, I realized. Like back in the day, they did a really good job. But um, now more in time, you can see that they're rusting. And so some of them have glass ceilings. And so that's where I got the football stadium from. And some of them have metal covers. And those are tanks or the, what we call them drums in my community. Um, they're filled with things that we don't even know what's in them. And so they're all not labeled, unmarked, and uh, in my community once, uh, one of them was even struck by lightning, and the impact was so big where someone was laying in their bed at night, and when it hit, they were risen above their bed, and they fell on the ground, and so it was a huge, like, event in my community. Um, The best way I can describe flares is uh, they're giant metal poles that are very, very high in the sky and that's because if they can be lower they would be but because uh, they're so close to not only my community they're also uh, down the street from Sarnia and they're down the street from Corona they have to rise um, put them up higher in the sky so that their impact level kind of seems like it's more of a wider space as well because there's like a difference between where they do uh, fence line testing and then where uh, it actually spreads out to be because they're so high up. And so uh, flares are, from what I learned from valley workers, they are what industry uses to burn off excess products, a product that they can't use or a product that um, they've like made a mistake on or something and they have to burn it off. 
And so the flaring happens sometimes during the day. It's mainly on cloudy days when you see bigger flames. And actually, while you guys were there, we got an alert that there was a spell happening currently. And that was one of the flares I pointed out to you guys. And so I also told you that I couldn't tell you whether it was a spell or not because it was so, like, they're very high up. So you can't tell whether they're five meters or not. And once... You see if a flare is five, over five meters, then it's technically a spill. Uh, there's another thing that I call the wall of pollution, which is um, kind of like a giant box with big vents on the top, and it vents out a larger amount of steam. And so one time one of those were going off with the flaring, and that was in February at Imperial Oil, and the steam was blowing into the flares, and it made it look so much bigger. It looked like a giant fireball in the sky, and it was so bad that I live in Sarnia right now, and so uh, across, like, I live in about the middle of the town, and it was lighting up my room orange, so I couldn't really sleep that night. Uh, And so that's the best way I could describe it. Also... Those big machineries with the wall pollution, they're right near where the old daycare was, and so it's right by a road, and if the wind direction is hitting it just right, it will blow onto the road and create a almost like a scene of fog, and so it can be a little bit hard of visibility, and so it's really interesting. I try and catch as many videos as I can of driving through it, And another big issue with that is they used to blow into people's houses. So that was a story I would hear from people that lived near them is that they would leave their windows and doors open and there would just be this like steam venting through the house and industry would say, it's fine, it's just steam, like let it blow through. But uh, later in life, some of those family members got very ill and so um, they try and connect it as much as they can to that because they're not really... Like you're only ex- you're exposed to so many chemicals every day, um, and there's a lot of pipelines like the, over Vital Road, which goes into Sarnia. There's actually pipelines that go over a bridge over the road, so that's a very unique sight to see um, for pipelines to go not only under the road but over and beside the road. And there's big boilers. Um, there's one boiler that I always notice on my ride to Sarnia. And it's so, so rusted. And I think it's one of the machinery, because we do know this for a fact that um, from when Imperial got here in 1880, they used the exact same equipment as when they got here. And so that boiler is completely rusted. And I just think about how old it is. So I think that that description really gets at one of the things that struck me most about being on the tour last week, which is just the sheer volume of number of plants that are there, the amount of machinery um, waste going into the environment from those spaces. And we were on the bus ride back and um, BZ said, oh, I just found out on Facebook, I think, right, that there had been a spill. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it was just like almost sort of matter of course, like, didn't seem like it was an unusual event for you and was something that you found out through social media and not from like some sort of warning signal. In no world can I imagine if that had been even one event in a, in a wealthy community, there would be 
outrage. People would like companies would have been sued and shut down. There would have been massive hearings. There would have been a ton of media coverage if that happened one time. And it sounds like it happens on an almost daily basis in your community. And I think that for me, more than anything, drove home this idea of like this is an issue of climate and also an issue of justice. Like this is really this is environmental racism in action because because they're like the powers that be get to decide when to care and when not to. Um, and I think that I learned that in, in the tour in a way that I would have never learned it otherwise. Yeah, I, like um, with spills when they happen, they try and get like as much information as they can for us. And so um, that actually leaves a lot of time where the spill is happening and we're unknowing of it. And so... I think that's another issue is that they don't have very good communication in that way. And like spills do happen very frequently, like um, especially like now in days where we are finding that since they're not updating their equipment, there's been a lot more spills. And even one of the tanks and drums leaked last week of oil. And so the only way they knew how to really fix it, and it happened for days on where they're trying to fix this issue and even uh, put down the code more. So the code was a 91 where they had to get the fire department to spray foam onto the tank, I think, to help stop the odor. And then uh, by then, once they uh, went through that process, they leveled it down to a code eight, which is a code they use very frequently where it's like uh, no community involvement, like it's fine kind of code. Like, And so um, spills, yeah, happen almost every week, I can say nowadays, but uh, it's very frequently, like a few times a month. And on our website, .com, we I try and document like whatever spills I get through my email and put them on the website with the months. And so from where I started was, I feel like more than a year ago. And so I try and document um, the spills on there to uh, show how frequent and how um, like some of the spills are very different where uh, train cars can be derailed and that's just put out through an email or they spilt into the Lake Sinclair or River Sinclair and they um, just spilled benzene in the air kind of thing. We try and document them as best we can. For me, BZ, when we were, um, one of the stops was at the pond and when we pulled in there, it was kind of a grassy area leading up to this beautiful-looking pond, and there was a heron um, over in the tall grasses, and there were birds singing, and uh, you could tell the deep sense of appreciation you and um, Vanessa have um, for that place. And then you started telling us the stories of the water testing and that um, the Ministry of Environment would say that it's okay to swim there, but don't touch the bottom and stir up the sediments. And I think that paradox of seeing um, such a beautiful place visually, but also this, you could still smell, or at least I could still smell um, you know, some of that really strong, um, you know, chemical smell um, where we were standing juxtaposed with that visual of this beautiful um, pond. It was really, really strange um, to be standing there, but also really lovely um, to be staying in a place that I know um, your community really treasures. Yeah, we really appreciated that pond. I feel like back in the day where we would use it for boating, I learned how to skate on that pond. Uh, and 
so that area was like very heavily used but then we could hear about like illegal dumpings that would happen through a manager would tell a worker take this barrel and get rid of it and so uh, we only hear that really from retirees because they're more comfortable they're like I've finished my job and I have kind of this guilt that like I spilled into your community deliberately we still use the area like I use that area for fundraising for the Chippewas of the Thames. I held a taco sale there. And so uh, we raised money for their court case against Line 9 because we're all from, we're from the same Treaty 29 territory. Me and my sister are so happy that they are going through the legal court case. They didn't just leave it at the NEB saying and passing it. Um, they continued to fight it in any way that they could, even though it takes so much time and resources and it might not work, like they might let it go through anyway, but that Chippewas of the Thames was still willing to fight anyway. And so the pond means still so much to us where we still use it for community events, even though yeah, the MOE says we can drink like half a cup of water, but then when we offer them half a cup of water from Telford Creek, they won't drink it. I've done water testing in that water, and I've gotten that water on me, and I never felt really any impacts, whereas when I was behind in the shell uh, ditch area and I did water testing there, when I got water on my skin, it kind of it felt very weird, almost like a tingly, burny sense. And so if... Like Telford Creek feels so much different. Like where's like they say we can swim and they but we can't touch the sediment. They say we can drink half a cup of water, but they won't do any of that. And I that says a lot about um, what they're willing to say versus what they're willing to do. Something that something that really struck me was how just how um, routine and pervasive the pollution is in your community. I mean, when I I live in Vermont and. Um, I, you know, I go hiking in the forest. I go swimming in the rivers. I don't ever think about the pollution I, I, you know, might encounter in those places. When I was a kid, I built, you know, I, I would have tea parties out of the the water and the puddles in my neighborhood and um, make mud pies, and and I never thought about any of that. And there was a story that you told early on in the tour about um, an abandoned chemical plant. Um, that kids would um, go in and they would play in the puddles and they would they would di- I think you said they would dip living frogs in the water just playing and they would come out just bones, which was a really I mean they're just kids trying to play. You also talked about a park that's um, polluted with asbestos and there's really nothing that anybody can do about it because there are fibers in the air. So these ki- these places where you know people just want to spend time outside like they would in in many other places are it's, the pollution is so pervasive you you can't even do those very basic things that many of us take for granted. Yeah, I think that also has a lot to do with the refineries and the way we set it up in the system, whereas like when a refinery closes down, they're not really responsible for that land after. And so uh, well and chemical went bankrupt and they left a lot of their stuff there even um, like bags of we don't know what like some people speculate it's the uh, very acidic chemical that was in the puddles and uh, asbestos park is um, being remediated right now but we don't know what could happen in future years if it's going to be very impactful later on again if um St. Clair Blob is going to be coming up again because it's still impacting communities downriver like Walpool. Um, 
And so these historical pollutions, they never cleaned up and they stay in these areas. And Amjanong just has to deal and live with them sometimes. And um, it's kind of the burden of living with industry that we didn't choose that at all. I think that one of the words that I might use to describe what it felt like being on the tour is, is that there was an all-pervasive threat. There was a, a threat to safety in every aspect. There was a threat to um, basic basic human rights. And um, I was there with my son, and my son uh, and I were sort of functioning like we normally do, assuming that we had access to basic human rights like clean air and clean water and an ability to walk on the street. And none of those things existed there. It was extraordinary to see him go silent and to really listen the second you started speaking um, and to hear and look at what you were describing because what we were seeing on the tour was what we experience in everyday life that we don't even think about. And that was extraordinary. And one of the, one of the really strong impacts on us both um, that we talked about afterwards when we got home was that there was a truck that was following us. And so this notion of threat to our health and to our safety doesn't, only exist because of these faceless huge factories that seem like they're 10 or 20 stories looming above this tiny town that's five kilometers around. Um, But that also the people that are attached to the industry and the money that is garnered from it uh, are also threatening and are also sort of menacing in a presence that is not supportive at all and that it's clearly not supportive and that that was something that when we were unpacking the experience because it's hard for a 10 year old kid when we were unpacking that experience it was it was a really extraordinary uh learning moment for both of us because i asked him what did you learn about today and he said i learned that some people are unbelievably not considered human and that's not okay because that's my friend that was there and it was I just burst into tears because it was it was exactly what I hope everybody knows right and um, it was pretty extraordinary to experience it because we were we were walking in your shoes for a couple of hours uh, and I can't imagine living like that all the time I can't so it's it's kind of a a a reality now that we I think as a family have taken on too as something to advocate for which is really extraordinary yeah I think that's really amazing and important to realize that that's our everyday life and that um, we're still a strong people and we still will fight for the land because we still see it as sacred what the refineries are on and the water is still just as important to us as it was when we were able to just drink from it straight and so everybody should have that right to clean water and clean clean air and i think that's a 
basic and essential and important right for everybody, even the valley workers that work there and have um, great incomes. Um, they shouldn't be working um, in a place that even puts them in danger as well for however long they're working. And I think that's important to realize as well is that um, like everyone's being impacted when they're either living there or working there or visiting there and that it's it's a destructive process and that's what we need to look at is um, what products are being made and outweighing the benefits and uh, the cons and how they're impacting everybody and even that area, the Great Lakes, we should be taking more into account about how much fresh water there is there and how remediation could take a very, very long time because mercury is something that we don't, like, I've never heard of any way of cleaning up. And so it's just something that might sit there for thousands and thousands of years until it's able to go away and not be taken out manually. And so I think that's something important to remember that some of the stuff that we're doing and some of the accumulation of chemicals that are happening are something that's not going to go away for a very long time. And so we shouldn't be looking into like the more natural gas or bitumen products because those are going to be adding more to the water there. That's going to be adding more chemicals to the water. And I think that's something everyone can understand is the importance of the Great Lakes and keeping them clean for everybody to be able to use and to continue using. Um, and that we all that live in that area and that are from that area uh, deserve the right to clean air. And that concludes the second uh, conversation section. We thank you, uh, thank very much uh, to BZ for joining us. Uh, we now, uh, when it comes back after the break, we uh, I jump in at this point and we just chat a little bit with uh, some of the students amongst our, ourselves. Uh, so we'll stay tuned for that. We're going to be right back after this music break. Again, you're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. Stay tuned. All right, we return now for the final section, the exciting conclusion of The Green Majority. I'm your host, Saren Kaster, and we're going to now, uh, I'm going to chat a little bit with some of the students uh, and uh, and Molly as well about uh, some of the uh, feelings we had and just some of the sort of uh, remaining thoughts. So we're back now. We're going to hear a little bit more from the students, and uh, why don't we, somebody get us started there. Somebody jump in. Go ahead. So what struck me most about the Toxic Tour was listening to BZ and their sister, Vanessa, tell us stories about what it's like to grow up in Amjanong. Of course, wherever one grows up, that's normal, because we, we don't know anything else besides um, our own experience when, when we're young. And so, for example, hearing BZ explain that they... During a, during a lesson in, in the fifth grade about the water cycle, BZ argued with their teacher about where clouds come from because BZ was certain that they had come from the smokestacks. Or, for example, the, uh, hearing stories about the, the officials from the Ministry of the Environment coming in and telling the community in Amjanong that it was okay <laughs> to swim in a local pond once a week. It was polluted to the extent that it was okay to swim once a week. And then members of the community inviting the Ministry of the Environment to come swim with them and the public officials not being willing to. 
Um, BZ spoke about environmental racism as well, and, and what we're learning in this course is basically, that in, in essence, that climate change is environmental racism on a huge scale. It's mostly white Westerners who've benefited from those sort of energy bonanza that has been the fossil fuel age. And now the people that are most affected by and most vulnerable to the negative effects tend to be people of color. I think people's personal environment and their personal community, whatever that might be, frames their own frame of reference so strongly that you really have to, you really have to sort of push people out. <laughs> you have to push people quite aggressively out of their comfort zone sometimes. Yeah, I agree with that. And it took on another form, too, when Vanessa Gray, BZ's sister, was speaking at the University of Vermont um, about civil disobedience and um, basically about breaking the law in order to get attention on an issue that otherwise people are really happy to forget. And there was a very insulting question from a, from um, students at the University of Vermont, which was uh, a bit distressing for those of us who were trying to represent our school a little better, but sort of along the lines of why, like, why don't you just go through the legal system? Why don't you, I don't even know exactly what they're going to say, like file reports or complain or do all the things that people have tried and failed to do. And I think that that's, that is one of the big barriers to understanding different perspectives on issues of climate change and environmental racism is that exactly what you're saying. It's, it's hard to get out of your own mindset. And so if you're a person who generally benefits from the legal system and who um, is part of a group of people that the authorities take seriously and want to protect, then it, it kind of doesn't make sense that any of this is happening because it wouldn't happen to you. And to step out of your own experience and realize that those systems are set up not only to protect some people but really to exclude others takes it takes sometimes going to a place like Sarnia and Amjanang or talking with people of vastly different experiences and or reading things that are really uncomfortable to read and that's been a big reflection for me this week in these courses is like this is super uncomfortable and even for people whose lives are very comfortable it's uncomfortable just to think about it let alone live it or deal with it um, but that's what we have to do if we're going to solve any of the problems. Something I'd be very interested in, in, uh, hearing about, uh, is sort of like, I remember being, when I was in school, I would go and I would, uh, you know, I came in, I had a fair bit of environment knowledge before I came to U of T, but when I was, I would maybe in my climate change class and I'd learn something and I'd be like, oh, so excited about it. And I'd go and try and explain to somebody and then I'd bump up against some of their preconceived notions. And I remember like, just trying to like, not really like show off, but I was just sort of like, oh, this is this really neat thing I learned about how um, uh, carbon dioxide is absorbed into the, the lower, like the, the carbon dioxide cycle in the deep ocean. And I tried to explain it to somebody and then I bumped up and it was like, oh, and that, that trying to explain that one piece of like that one conceptual uh, piece, uh, I discovered that the person I was talking to didn't believe climate change was real. And then that turned into some giant argument. And so I'm just sort of like, I'm, I'm curious about in that thing, as far as like communicating and that difference of understanding and that difference of information, if you guys have had any experiences throughout this whole process, throughout being at school of, of doing that, of not just having this information, but, but the difficulty of actually communicating it to other people and bumping up against other people's ideas. We've had a lot of these conversations about how do we, how do we engage with people who, who don't come from a similar mindset that we do or do not share the same values? Um, I, I really struggle with questions like that just in terms of coming from um, a community that I don't necessarily um, identify with now 
and and having those difficult conversations with people that I that I really love and grew up respecting. Um, and I think we all have those sort of thoughts in terms of the, the privileged position that we're in in academia. And we go through an experience like this, um, understanding that we are learning something that a community experiences every day. And we, only, we were only safe in that space because BZ had experienced what was not safe and could tell us where not to go. And then we got on a bus and went home. Um, NBC and, and their family continue to live that every day. And I think that's, that's where these conversations um, really need to continue, that we need to see within this own sort of environment that we've developed in academia of knowledge systems um, and how we share knowledge and have these conversations um, and understanding you know, what, what we've done to contribute this and to perpetuate how knowledge is shared and what is valid and what ought to be considered um, uh, a, a valid contribution to the conversation and, and how maybe we can change that in this program. Also, the problem of environmental racism is not restricted to North America. It's global. I had a similar toxic tour in India where certain pharmaceutical companies were located on the outskirts of a major city um, near certain villages where... They were subject to water pollution and this pungent sulfur-like smell, you know, which affected their daily lives. So, I mean, this problem is evident everywhere and where people who do not have a voice uh, are subject to the, these kind of problems. So, um, the, its climate injustice needs to be, you know, tackled at a global level with, uh, you know, nations and especially international organizations taking place, I mean, playing a major role in it. And also through the legal system, um, the only thing which I feel is, um, which can be tackled is a public interest litigation where someone, a person or a citizen on behalf of the whole community uh, files a litigation um, con uh, telling about a problem, you know, which affects not only a particular community, but the entire society. So that is one aspect where, you know, we, through the legal system, can, you know, fight these kind of, you know, issues of climate injustice and environmental racism. Something that I think is really important that came out of this experience, and Barb definitely touched on this a little bit, is the, the idea of how important it is to actually be experiencing these things rather than just hearing about them. You know, there's a lot of stories about environmental racism that we hear about. There's a lot of conversation about climate change that talks about the communities that, could, that are going to be more affected and can't do anything about it. And that doesn't seem to be doing enough. Hearing about those stories doesn't seem to be doing enough. And we talk a lot about bringing more voices to the table. But what this trip really did for me was, was made me realize that maybe we need to be going to their proverbial tables, that we need to be going and seeing those things for ourselves, because those are really the most powerful experiences that make people want to want to actually do something. Yeah. I mean, and, and uh, one of the, one of the reasons that I have sort of, I have trouble talking about this level uh, on the show, this sort of where we're at. Uh, I have trouble talking about on the show because for me, it just, everything immediately cascades up to 
the sort of meta level, right? So as soon as we even have this conversation and be like, okay, well, it's down to money. I mean, it's, it's frankly, it's just cheaper for these companies to pay a bunch of lawsuits than it is to do behavior. Like it's, it's a line item, right? It's just, they just, you put it into the cost sheet. Yep. Okay. We still make more money just paying off lawsuits. And, and there we go, which is why I, I, you know, I, I, I personally, I try and keep, because I'm also a very sensitive person, so I tend to avoid things like toxic tours and that sort of thing because I know what the impact will be and I know it will really affect me and I know that it's going to make me want to make things change immediately and that I won't be able to do that. So it's sort of like it's for my – I feel like I'm more effective if I keep an arm's sort of length approach to it. But but also because like at the same point, I it's – yeah, you can – these conversations are co- so complex and yet they're so incredibly simple. It's money. Right. That's that's really what it comes down to for me. Sorry, somebody else wanted to jump in. Go ahead. Yeah, what really hits me and uh, it's really unsettling is the sense of guilt uh, I live with since I started realizing how serious this pro- these problems are, and uh, it is it hits me more uh, now that I have seen uh, that I have uh, I have had the experience of the toxic tour, and it makes me wonder and it makes me think that we do have as somebody says, the responsibility to communicate and understand these, um, the, the First Nations perspective. But uh, I think we also have, uh, at a deeper level, the responsibility to question our way of life itself. Because uh, we have kind of, face, kind of to face the elephant in the room, we have to f- face the fact that our way of life is really... Uh, damaging and we have then in my opinion to uh, question what are our our motivations and uh, we also have to learn from the indigenous people we have to understand that our way of life has led the world to the to the current situation of climate change and global environmental problems so it is time for us to start learning from them their way of life start questioning our way of life and start to uh, change it in learning from them their relationship their true and meaningful and probably more correct definitely more correct relationship with the planet so that was the final section. I'm, again, thanks very much to Molly and the class and to BZ for joining us and uh, providing us with some extremely important information um, that, uh, I mean, it's really, it's really I, think, I think, I hope the takeaway today was that people go and actually take the tour because I think part of the takeaway, at least what I got from listening to the discussion today uh, and to listening to the interview was that, um, I mean, there's, there's, a lot of in, there's a lot of information um, and there's a lot of detail, but I think the biggest thing that I learned was that it's something that you really have to go and see. Um, because, I mean, I've, I've done tons of reading about it, but I mean, to just to, to, to just even witness the impact obvious on the faces of, of all the people that we're speaking here today, I mean, as I said, yeah, if, if I was sold on one thing today, it's that talking about it is not really good enough. Um, so I encourage the listeners to go and uh, to do that. I'm sure that BZ or, or someone else will be happy to uh, answer emails or whatnot. We'll, we'll find out if we can get any contact information about how to find more information about that, get that posted on the website as well. Um, 
But I, I mean, yeah, I think I just want to leave people with that. Molly, would you do us the favor? You've done a, 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 an amazing job wrangling us um, some, some guests and some wonderful students today. Uh, perhaps you would do us the final honor of just wishing everybody goodbye. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you, obviously, to my classmates and to Busy for, for doing this for us. And in terms of impact, I mean, it's pretty clear. We, we sort of, we, we redid our, what we wanted to do on this radio show after this toxic tour. So um, it's important, and if you can go, you should. And if, um, yeah, I, I can't emphasize that enough. So thank you, and um, goodbye. All right, so there will be, unfortunately, no bonus show this week. We're going to have to skip that. We'll be back with regular programming, live show next week, as well as our regular bonus show. Stay tuned. Hope you uh, enjoyed and learned something on this week's program. Have a good Green Week, folks, and take care.